At the heart of what it is to be a sinful human being, at the heart of what it is, is the desire to dethrone God and to enthrone self. That is really the core of what it is to be a sinful human being. And it was this very thing that was pawned off on Adam and Eve in the garden that they might be as God, as gods. And this desire of being like God, being sovereign, is echoed in Psalm 2, verses 2 through 3. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. And that is the desire of humanity to cast off any sovereign rule, any constraint from God, to be free, breaking their bands, doing away with any influence and control of an almighty sovereign God. And so man desires to enthrone himself in the seat of sovereignty. And the reason why man wants so much to be sovereign is because what it is to be God at a very fundamental level is to be sovereign. If you want to know who God is, you need to ask who is sovereign. And if you want to know who is sovereign, you need to ask who God is. God, by definition, is sovereign. Completely and totally sovereign. If he were anything less, he could not be God. And so men want to be like God, therefore they want to be enthroned in the seat of sovereignty. And so I'm sure you can guess what the topic will be this evening. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And before we embark on this, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are ever so conscious that this subject is far, far beyond us. And we, we just stand in humble awe and, and say, Lord, please, please help. Lord, help the preacher. Father, help the hearers. Lord, this is so utterly beyond our comprehension. Lord, just just be pleased to show us something of your glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. So, the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God. Now, the sovereignty of God is a truth that is often either neglected, denied, or minimized. Sometimes it is neglected. We don't want to preach about the sovereignty of God because it's such a difficult subject. It's not exactly what you would maybe put on a flyer and pass out everywhere. Hey, come hear a sermon about how God is sovereign and you're not. Usually that's not something that everybody would want to come, come hear. It's not 
necessarily seeker-sensitive, so sometimes it's neglected. Sometimes it's outright denied. At the expense of the sovereignty of God, the free will of man is uplifted, and God is simply a being that is trying very, very hard to accomplish what he wants to get done, but he ultimately bows the knee to the sovereign choices of man. And then sometimes it's minimized. People will hold reason in one hand, philosophy in the other, and they'll cut down the sovereignty of God. They'll cut off the fatty parts and they'll scrape off some of the gristle so it's not too hard to swallow and you can fit it in your mouth, give you a bite-sized version of the sovereignty of God so that God is sovereign to a point, but not sovereign to where it makes you feel uncomfortable. And so the sovereignty of God is a subject that is very necessary for us to talk about. The sovereignty of God, as I mentioned, is at the very heart and core of what it is to be God. And if you and I want to see the God of the Bible, we will have to come to face, excuse me, have to come to the fact of the sovereignty of God. And I'll warn you this evening, as we look at the sovereignty of God, you will be faced with some decisions to make. When you hear of the truth of the sovereignty of God, you can either say, yes, I see that in the Bible, but it is so uncomfortable to me that it must not be true. There must be another interpretation. There must be some other way to understand what we're reading. And therein dismiss the sovereignty of God. Or, you can see what it says in the scripture. And bow the knee in humility and in reverence to the God of awful, sovereign majesty. Not the God who is on necessarily Hobby Lobby picture frames. Maybe not the God that is portrayed in a regular um, Christian bookstore. A God who is trying, but we preach a God who is absolutely sovereign. And that will strike at the very heart of what it is to be a human. And so as you hear the sovereignty of God, you will feel a little bit uncomfortable because it strikes at the heart of what it is to be a human being. And that is normal and it is natural. But the decision comes, will I harden my neck to this truth and say it can't be? Or will I bow the knee before the God who is sovereign? Now, as I come to this subject tonight, this is a very difficult and a very broad, massive, vast, huge, expansive subject. And so, probably the best way, and it also, I should say, is a subject that can be easily misunderstood and, and easily miscommunicated. And so I think the best way to do this is to let the Bible speak to us. And so to look at a number of passages and just let the Word of God speak. Just read the Word 
draw conclusions from these passages and just let God reveal who He is without necessarily trying to philosophize. Just let God speak. And the first passage I want to turn us to is Job chapter 23. And I will be turning to a number of passages so you can either follow along in your Bibles or sit and listen. And first I want us to see God's sovereignty defined. We turn to Job 23. We look at verses 13 through 14. Now, in Job chapter 23, Job is at a very low point in his life. Eliphaz in chapter 22 has just basically told Job that the reason why he is in the situation that he's in is because of his sin. And so he's basically called out Job and said, Hey, Job, you're a liar. You're in this because of your own sin. So in Job chapter 23, Job is distraught and he is searching for an audience with God. He wants God to come and to speak with him, perhaps to vindicate him or to give him some token of his favor. And as Job is crying out for the Lord, he finds that he cannot find the Lord. God is not pleased to manifest Himself to him. And then Job continues in Job 23 to say, But I have kept my integrity. And after he speaks of his integrity, we come to verses 13 through 14, where Job says, But he, that is God, is in one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. First, notice from this passage that what God desires, He does. Just notice that first. What His soul desireth, even that He doeth. God does what He desires. He doesn't do what people desire. He doesn't do what creatures desire. He does what He desires. So, His will is controlled by His desires. Secondly, notice that his purposes cannot be turned. Job says, who can turn him? He is in one mind, who can turn him? What his soul desireth, even that he doeth. And so, whatever God purposes, nobody can turn him from. Whatever God sets out to do, it cannot be hindered, it cannot be reversed. God will accomplish that which He sets out to do. And that's clearly in the text. And then third, God has appointed Job, has appointed Job's afflictions. God has appointed His afflictions. He says in verse 14, For He performeth the thing that is appointed for me. Now, the Hebrew word translated appointed is a word that speaks of something official or legal, like a decree. And so God is saying, or Job is saying of God, what is happening to me is what God has decreed, what God has appointed. And so Job notices that in the midst of his affliction and his suffering, that this is not just something that has happened that God will work for good somehow, but this has been appointed. This has been decreed by God. Move to another passage. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10. 
In Isaiah chapter 46, the Lord is dealing with idolatry. And Isaiah is preaching to Judah about the foolishness of idolatry and how these idols can be carried around and they're made of gold and silver. And what are they in comparison with God Himself? And so Isaiah, in verses 9 through 10, tells them what God is really like. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Now we'll stop there and just say, whatever Isaiah is about to say, well, God through Isaiah, has to do with the uniqueness of God. It has to do with the Godness of God. God is saying, I am God, and there is none like me. What I am about to say that I do is completely unique to me. There is no one who can do this. And so what he's about to say is what it means for God to be God. If you want to know what God is really like, Isaiah is about to tell us. And he says in verse 10, Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done. Now that is simply a statement of foreknowledge. God knows what will happen before it happens. And how do we know that? Because He can declare the end from the beginning, from ancient times the things are not yet done. So God is saying, the true God can predict the future. Idols can't do that. The true God can tell you exactly what will happen at any point in time in the future. And He can tell you that it will ha- what will happen before it ever happens. But what does that mean as far as God's sovereignty? Look at the rest of the verse. Saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Now why does He say that? Back up for a moment. How does God have the ability to say exactly what will happen at any given point in the future? How does He know that? How can He say, this will certainly happen in the future? Because He has looked forward in time and He has simply, he has simply seen the free actions of people and His hands are off of it? What does the Lord say? My counsel shall stand. Now this word counsel speaks of his purpose. My purpose shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God, how do you know exactly what will happen in the future? Because my purpose will stand. In other words, I can tell you exactly what will happen in the future because I have purposed the future. Because I have purposed it, I can tell you what will take place. It's not that God knows everything because He looked at what men would do and therefore He says, I purpose it. It's not that God knows what men will do because He's looked at their future decisions and says, therefore I will purpose it. God has said, I will purpose it 
And therefore, on that basis, he knows what will happen. The basis of God's knowledge of the future is the fact that he has purposed what will take place in the future. My counsel shall stand. My purpose shall stand. You can't have it both ways. So somebody, somebody says, well, here's God. And God says, well, I would like this to happen. I would like this to happen. And he's talking about everything in the future. Everything. Because he says, any point in time. Any point in time in the future. Lord, tell me, tell me what kind of cup of coffee I'm going to have three months from now on a Saturday evening. He could tell you. Why? Because he's purposed it. Everything. Now, if God has purposed something, but man has done opposite of what God has purposed, his purpose has not stood. So not only does God purpose everything, but his purposes cannot be thwarted. And his purposes are based on his pleasure. What he Desires Again, that's following Job. Now, I want to turn us to another passage as well. Help us to get a, a full view of this. And hopefully as the passages keep coming, you start to see kind of a full-orbed view of how the Bible is speaking about God's sovereignty. When God says in Isaiah 46, verse 9... Verse, um, these verses 9 through 10, with 9 being his declaration of his uniqueness, he then speaks of the fact that, as I mentioned, he will do all his pleasure. And so then this brings to us the question of why does God purpose all that he does? It's for his own pleasure. Okay? This brings to mind Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul speaks of all of the blessings that the church has in their head, who is Christ. Blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So they're blessed in Christ Jesus. And then he explains how they are blessed, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the earth. It's according to. This is how. This is why. Because of God's sovereign free choice in eternity. But there's this phrase that continues to come up in Ephesians chapter 1, and it is this. In verse 5, he says that election adoption is according to the good pleasure of his will. In verse 9, according to his good pleasure, which he hath purposed in himself. Good pleasure. Now, the Greek word translated good pleasure is a compound word coming from two different words, one that means good and one that means seemed. Seemed good. What is God's good pleasure? It's what seems good to God. Why are people adopted? Because it seemed good to God. Why are people chosen? Because it seemed good to God. Why are people's sins forgiven? Redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Why are they in Christ? 
Why are they predestined? Why are they going to be holy without blame before Him in love? Because it seemed good to God. At the very basis of it all, it seemed good to God. It's according to the good pleasure of His will, not of our will. Now, our will moves in salvation. We repent. We believe. Yes. But God's will, God's will comes before ours. God was pleased to save each of us. And that's why we were given a new heart and we responded in repentance and faith. It is according to the good pleasure of His will. You want to know why God has saved you? Because it seemed good to Him. I don't know why. I don't know why it was you. I don't know why it was me. I have no idea and it's staggering to think that out of the billions and trillions that have ever lived, it's just amazing to think that God has set His love upon me. God has set His love upon you. And just think about the millions that died in the plague. Maybe 200 million, some say. Just swept out into eternity. And how many of them were lost and swept into hell? It's amazing to think that this little man made out of dust You, man, woman, made out of dust, with a sinful heart. God was pleased to take you unto Himself, to set His love on you. And that's what the text says, to the good pleasure of His will. But it goes even beyond just salvation, because in verse 11, the Apostle Paul says, "...in whom also we have obtained an inheritance..." being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. Now notice that. All things. All things after the counsel of His will. Everything that takes place, not only salvation, but everything is according to His good pleasure. Everything. Why was I born in Maryland? It pleased God. Why, why do you have certain family you have? It pleased God. Why were you brought up in a Christian home? It pleased God. Why do you get cancer? It pleased God. It pleased God. Theologian Greg Nichols wrote, It is mystery enough that the triune God who always enjoyed complete happiness and satisfaction should select to create. It is even greater mystery that the impeccable God should decree the fall. It is the zenith of mystery that He should select in Christ a remnant of sinful humanity and send him to suffer his wrath for them. We know only that God wills it because it pleased him. See, there comes a point with certain questions. Why did God allow, permit, decree, this, this, this? I don't know. The Bible only says it pleased him. 
that does not mean that God had no reason. But based upon his impeccable wisdom, it pleased him to order all things in this world, all things after the counsel of his own will. Then I want us to move to see God's sovereignty displayed. And you can turn to these passages, but I'll probably read them more quickly. In the first, I want us to see His sovereignty in nature. The forces of nature are not merely set up like a clock that you wind up and let it spin. Yes, God has set up the forces of nature, the laws of nature, and they do work according to how God has set them up. But that does not mean that God has not purposed each of their actions. And God is not intimately involved in everything in nature. I want you to see this in Scripture. Psalm 147, verses 16 through 18. He giveth. I'm going to emphasize the words that speak of sovereignty. He giveth snow like wool. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sendeth out His word and melteth them. He causeth His wind to blow and the waters flow. Who sends it out? He does. Who sends out the snow? Who sends out the rain? Who sends out the ice? Who sends the storm? He does. That's what the psalmist says. Job 37, verses 10 through 12 By the breath of God, frost is given, and the breadth of the water is is straightened. Also by watering, he wearieth the thick cloud. He scattereth his bright cloud, and it is turned around by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commandeth them upon the face of the world and the earth. He causeth it to come, whether for correction, or for his land, or for mercy." Hearken unto this, O Job, stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. He turns it by his counsels. God is behind the storm. Hurricane Michael, I just ripped up the coast. Just an unfortunate circumstance that God tried and wishes He could have stopped, but He couldn't stop it, or He had to let it happen because it's the result of, of a world of people who are, who are free, and He had nothing to do with it, and He's there to help us, but He had nothing to do with it. No, the Bible says, He causeth it to come. He causeth it to come, whether for correction, or for His land, or for mercy. He is completely sovereign over even hurricanes. Psalm 148, verse 8. Fire and hail, snow and vapor, stormy wind, fulfilling His word. Fulfilling His word. That's a staggering thing. But not only is God sovereign over the forces of nature. He's sovereign over the animal kingdom. In the book of Daniel, God spoke, lions, keep your mouths shut. 
and they didn't move. He told a fish, a very big one, to swallow Jonah, and he did it. He told a plant to grow up over Job's head, and the plant obeyed. He told a worm to go up and to eat it, and the worm obeyed. God is completely sovereign. And if Jesus wanted to, he could say, stop to any force of nature. He could command anything and it will obey. He can command animals. He can command nature. He can command plants. He can command anything. He's completely and absolutely sovereign over everything. But then I want us to see that God is sovereign over the nations. And Daniel 2, verse 21, And He changeth the times and the seasons. He removeth kings and setteth up kings. He giveth wisdom unto the wise and knowledge to them that know understanding. Daniel 4, verse 17, This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever He will and setteth up over it the basest of men. They want to know why today Donald Trump is our president? It's because God willed it. Yes, people voted. Yes, people voted. And we'll look at that as we go on. How God is sovereign and man is free. But whomsoever He will, He gave it to. Whoever is next going to be there, the president, is whomsoever he will. The man who's over North Korea right now was a Kim Jong-un, a terrible dictator, whomsoever he will. God is absolutely sovereign. Proverbs 21, verse 1, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. And the key to understanding that text is understanding what the author of Proverbs means by the rivers of water. He's talking about canals that were used for irrigation. And just as easily as you could, you could turn the course of a canal for irrigation in a garden, God can turn the heart of a king like that. The king's heart is in the hand of God. But then third, the fine details not only does God's sovereignty extend to the big things of nature, but to every detail of life. Proverbs 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. In biblical times, lots were cast to determine things. You might have you know, come to your mind a bunch of sticks, and whoever has the longest stick has to go do such and such. Um, what the author of Proverbs here is saying is that even the hand that stretches out and grabs the longest stick, it was ordained by God. When you put your name in a drawing and somebody reaches their hand down and they fumble around, they grab one little name and they pull it out, the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. When you're playing a game with somebody and you roll the dice, the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Every single detail is disposed by God. 
In Matthew 10.29, the Lord Jesus says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father? Well, these sparrows are not worth very much. Two for a farthing. And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Without your father's notice, yes. Without your father's permission. Not one sparrow in the forest in Oregon somewhere that nobody knows about, nobody sees, that just died and fell to the ground is not known by God. And remember what we said in Isaiah 46. Why does God know? Because He purposed. God has decreed even the falling of a sparrow. He has purposed even the death of a little tiny sparrow. Spurgeon said that there's not one speck of dust that is not flying at the command of God. One man said there's not even one rebel molecule. Everything is under God's sovereign domain. And then we noted salvation. And I don't have time to get into the specifics of God's sovereignty of salvation. I'm just going to read you a passage. And I think you'll be able to grasp as I read it. Romans 9, verse 13. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us, even us. Just by way of note, that's where, why you know this passage is not talking about nations. Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. I don't think I need to make a comment on that passage, except to say this. If you read it right, you will ask the same questions Paul brings up. Is there unrighteousness with God? The sovereignty of God pricks the very core of what it is to be a human being so that we respond by saying, is there unrighteousness with God? How can you then condemn me for sin? Who's resisted his will? 
Well, then we come to the fifth thing. God's sovereignty over human choices. And this is where things get sticky. Let's let the scriptures speak. But we need to be balanced with our understanding of God's sovereignty over the free actions of men. And I want us to look at two different passages first. Well, there will be one set of passages in Acts and one set of passages in Genesis. In Acts 2, verse 23 of the cross, we read, Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Now, determinate counsel is it's two, two Greek words. Orizo is one, another one, bully. Orizo means to appoint or decree. The other speaks of God's purpose. So you can say, this is God's appointed purpose. God has fixed this to be. Foreknowledge, just God knows what will happen. But remember, why does He know? Because He has fixed it to be, which fits again with this passage. But Jesus was delivered by the determinate counsel, the appointed purpose, the fixed decree of God. It was certain that it would happen because God appointed it. Acts 4, we find the same thing. For to do whatsoever, this is verse 28, thy hand, this is God's hand, and thy counsel determine before to be done. This is Jesus. To do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determine before to be done. Determine before is the word we, we would translate predetermine. He determined before it ever happened that the cross would happen. Before it ever happened. Some people would say, that's fatalism. Now you have to follow me here, and it's a, it's a difficult thing to understand. But think with me for a moment here about fatalism. Fatalism says everything is determined because men are robots which will do what they're programmed to do. That's fatalism. There is no freedom in fatalism. There is no God who orchestrates things. There's just robots that are controlled, and the robot does what the robot's programmed to do. Human beings are free. Okay? They are free. Now, remember last Thursday we spoke how they're not, they don't have a free will in the sense that they can freely, of their own volition, turn from sin and rest in Christ because the desires of their heart, which are behind their choices, are only for sin. But that did not mean that man is not free to do what he desires. Man is a free agent. He is not a robot. 
Nothing that we have read has said that he is a robot. That is fatalism. What the scripture is saying is that everything is determined by God's sovereign and wise purposes, but that man acts freely in accord with his own motives and will. God does not make anybody do anything. He does not cause people to sin. He does not force anybody to believe, and He does not force anybody to sin. God never forced anybody to believe on Jesus Christ. They come willingly. He never forced anyone. He gives them a heart of flesh. That heart of flesh has new desires. Desires for God. Desires against sin. But God never forced anyone's hand. God did not force the people who crucified Jesus to do that. Or it would incriminate God. God is not the author of sin. And God did not make these men sin. But God did purpose that they would sin. God did purpose. Now God purposes things in different ways. Some things he has purposed, and we say permissively. Permissively. Some things he purposes, and he actually commands and does it. You saw with the, with the storms and with the waves and things like that. But when it comes to sin, God permits sin. But it's not just a permission like this. Well, I'm going to take my hands off and let man just let man sin and that's a little area of his sovereignty i can't step in and stop it that's not what permit means it means he has purposed it he can step in and stop it stop it if he wants but he has purposed that it would take place he's not caused it he's not made them sin but he has purposed it. He has said before it happened that it would take place. Now, I'll explain this more as we, as we go on. But man's freedom has to be maintained. If you lose the fact that men are free, start saying that they're robots. God's a puppet master. You've gone way beyond Scripture. Way beyond Scripture. That's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. But if you say that God is not sovereign in the fact that in the sense that he has not purposed and ordained everything that comes to pass, you have also gone beyond scripture. You cannot deny either one of them. You have to hold both of them together. As one person said about sin, God neither causes sin nor approves sin. He only permits, directs, restrains, limits, and overrules it. Man, the free agent, is the sole one responsible and the sole one guilty for his own sin. This is, the only, this is the only conclusion we can come to when God says, I determined that people would perform the greatest evil that has ever taken place on the face of the planet. What's the greatest evil that has ever taken place? That human beings would take into their own hands the sinless Son of God and would crucify and shame Him upon a cross. There is nothing more evil than that. And yet God says that took place according to the determinate counsel of God. According to the foreordination of God, 
according to the purposes of God. I purposed that those men would take Jesus and crucify Him. But we need to have an understanding in our minds. God can purpose something, but not be guilty of it. God can purpose something, but not cause it and make people do it. He purposes it, but when He purposes it, it simply means it will happen. That doesn't mean that God makes it happen in the sense that He forces their hand, if you understand what I mean. For example, what if God simply restrained, held back the restraining Holy Spirit from these men, allowing them to crucify Christ according to their own desires? The Spirit of God restrains sin in the world. So what if God simply held back His restraining power, allowing these men to do what they desired to do? They're still free, but God is still sovereign. And so we have this here. God determined this. And this is a tremendous illustration of suffering at any time in the Christian's life. If you can look at the greatest evil that has ever happened and know that God was not aloof, not surprised, but determined it, Because it pleased him. Not pleased him because he was pleased with the sin. No. Pleased him because he was pleased with the result. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. If that is true about the cross, that the greatest good ever came out of the greatest evil ever then any evil in your life, any amount of suffering in your life, any amount of moral evil even that happens to you or things that come up in your life, God will work all things together for our good. Well, this is too bad. God can't have purposed this. Nothing's worse than the cross. God purposed the cross and the cross brought about the greatest good. That whatever trial has happened to you, God is well able to work that for good. And in fact, He's purposed it to be so. And for this, I want to turn you to our last passage, which is Genesis. Now, the last example I want to give you is from the life of Joseph. Joseph is a wonderful example of God's providence and God's sovereignty. An amazing example. Um, Joseph, you remember, was the young man who, um, Jacob's son, who had a coat of many, many colors. And, you know, he strutted around this coat of many colors. And his brothers were just sick and tired of this guy walking around with a coat of many colors. His father thought he was the best thing that ever happened. And then Joseph tells them all about, hey, I had a dream where you all are going to be bowing down to me and I'm going to be Lord over you. I don't think that made them very happy. So his brothers got upset. His brothers found him and they were going to kill him, but instead they sold him to a group of traveling merchants. They made it appear to his father like he had been killed by a wild beast. And then you remember the story, Joseph just happened to be 
Um, he happened to be sold to a man who is over a house with a wife who wanted to commit adultery with Joseph. That man happened to be a part of the military. And this woman just happened to try to accost Joseph. And Joseph fled. And he fled, but then he was still, um, he was still looked at as being guilty, even though he didn't do it. And he was put into, into prison. And you remember how he stayed there. And you had the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and, and everybody. And, and then they... You remember what happened and all of that. And then he ends up being the second to Pharaoh. And now he's in charge of the grain of everything. And, and he, excuse me, he's in charge of the grain. And he's, he's feeding the people of the nations about and selling them all this grain during a time of famine. And now he's uplifted to the second under Pharaoh. And it's absolutely amazing that all of that really couldn't have happened. It couldn't have happened if he wasn't given a coat of many colors. It couldn't have happened if he wasn't sold to the merchants. It couldn't have happened if he didn't go to Potiphar's house. It couldn't have happened if he didn't go to a jail cell with those two men. And it couldn't have happened if one of them didn't get killed and one of them go free. And it couldn't have happened if the king didn't need a a dream to be explained. And by the way, because of Joseph, the people of Israel sojourned in Egypt And then years later, because they sojourned in Egypt, there was another Pharaoh who came and he didn't like the people of Israel and he put them under bondage. And because he put them under bondage, they cried out to God. A man named Moses was raised up. The man named Moses who was raised up took these people out of Egypt, brought them to the the promised land, and they had the law given to them at Sinai and they had the sacrificial system given to them. And you have really the, the central... Um, tenets of the promises of the gospel there with that old covenant made with the people and on and on we could go to Jesus Christ who ultimately comes and you could trace it back to um, perhaps Joseph's father making him a coat. Because everything is ordained by God. And if you say, well, the little thing isn't ordained, but the big things are, it's like saying there's a huge chain, but there's missing links. Every single aspect of creation and existence has been purposed by God. And I know I'm running out of time, but I want to read you these two texts. As Joseph's brothers came to Joseph for food, in Genesis 45 and verse 5, Joseph revealed to his brothers that he was Joseph. And he says in verse 5, Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. Now I want to ask you the question, who sold Joseph? Who sold Joseph? Was it the men? The brothers? Or was it God? Was it men or was it God, right? It was both. So, you come down with some serious illness. Who gave you that illness? Well, I mean, you know, God didn't necessarily give me that illness because he wanted me to suffer and, you know, call that illness to 
cause me to suffer as if he wanted to inflict pain, but it's part of his purpose. He decreed that that would happen to you. Whatever has happened to you in the past, God was behind it all. God not only, God not, when we say here that God, it says God did send me. God did send me. God did send me. Wait a second, didn't the brothers send me? No, God sent you. God was behind it because God purposed it, but the brothers were the secondary causes. They were the ones who worked according to their own free will, but God was behind it all. And that's true of every single thing that has ever happened in your life. It's amazing. Again, what they did was sinful, and it says, God sent me. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph says, But as for you, he's speaking to the brothers again, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. So the brothers acted with evil intentions. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To save much people alive. And you know, you can write that, really, you can think about that over everything in your life that has ever happened. The flesh meant it for evil. The devil meant it for evil. People meant it for evil. Whatever meant it for evil. But God meant it for good. But God meant it for good. If you're a believer... But God meant it for good. Ultimately, God means all things for good. But for you personally, only a believer can claim the promise that God meant it for good to them. Romans 8.28 is a verse for believers only, who are called according to His purpose. But God meant it for good. God meant it for good. What's happened to me has been... Been, been terrible. God meant it for good. God purposed it. God ordained it. God was behind the whole thing. And God has meant it for good. You can write anything in that category that has ever happened to you. God meant it. For good. And what that means really for us is that when we think about things that have happened, look, we ought not, and, and I'm, I'm just as guilty, but we ought not to murmur and complain about what has happened to us. No matter if we're, if we're born with some disability or we have some some physical issue and some disease, or we have a terrible thing that has happened in our lives, or we're given a bad job, or whatever. God has purposed it, and He meant it for good. And what our attitude should be is, God, what good are you going to bring out of this? I don't know. What are you going to do? And we're to be looking for the good that God will bring out of that. And we might not ever be able to see all that He does. 
We don't understand what He's doing, all of His purposes. We can't begin to understand the depth of God's knowledge and wisdom of every single given circumstance and occurrence. But God meant it for good. He meant it for good. And when you think about this as a Christian, it becomes even more precious. Because as a Christian, you are in covenant with God. And being in covenant with God, God cannot ever treat His covenant children in any way but graciously. That is what He has promised. That is the blessing of the covenant. Anyone who is underneath the umbrella of His covenant cannot be treated in any other way than with grace. Whatever God has allowed in your life, not only allowed, permitted, not only permitted, I mean purposed, purposed. I don't want to just say allowed, purposed, purposed, decreed, ordained. And remember, God is totally sovereign, but man is also free. Please don't ask me to reconcile the two. But whatever God has purposed, He has acted towards you graciously. He cannot do anything else. As certain as the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is before the Father, He cannot, He cannot, He can't treat His children any other way but graciously. Any other way but kindly. Any other way but lovingly. Any other way but for their good. Whatever has happened has been for good. Well, as we come to the end of our Bible study survey this evening of the sovereignty of God, there is so, so much more that we could say and there's just no way to put it into one message. But now the decision has to be made. Will we see some things that we have read tonight that are hard to swallow? Some things that we say, how can that be? Well, we say, even though it seemed like the Bible said that, it can't be true. Or will we bow humbly and reverently under the God who is sovereign and say, Lord, Thy word is truth. You have meant it for good. I rejoice in Thee. You are my shepherd. If it pleased you, it's okay with me.